Welcome to LifeSide B. My name is June Wang, the host of today's episode. On today's episode, I spoke with Rami Algandor, chairman and CEO of Arcelix, a clinical stage biotech company reimagining cell therapy, which also announced a strategic collaboration with Kite in December of 2022. Prior to Arcelix, Rami was the president and CEO of Nevro, helping take the company public and growing the business to about $400 million in revenue. Rami started his career as a design engineer and then as an inventor with Johnson & Johnson's Development Corporation. He has earned recognition as EY Entrepreneur of the Year and a recipient of the Bell Campbell Award by Watermark for his advocacy in promoting women and women's issues. Thanks, Rami, for joining us on the show today. I want to start with a fun question. You've mentioned before that when you were a kid, you took apart toys and that inspired your engineering career. So what was your favorite toy to tinker with back then? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, June. It's super fun to be on uh, on here and doing this with you. Look, I didn't discriminate from a toy perspective. I mean, I took mechanical toys apart, like anything mechanical or electrical, I pretty much took apart. But I had like an early video game system. I think it was like a Casio or something that I would take apart and like marvel at the electronics. My little brother was always really nervous about this because, you know, I wasn't the best at putting them back together and sometimes break things in the process of doing this. But definitely that early curiosity, I think, certainly was a predictor of, I guess, how I would uh, go on to live the rest of my life. And how did your curiosity continue to be a driver motivating you in your career? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it certainly was directly linked to me becoming an engineer. You know, that love for how things work and that intellectual curiosity really led me to wanting to become an engineer. So I went to a medical technology company where I designed uh, circuits and wrote code and, and helped design and develop implantable neurostimulators. Uh, and that was really, really fun. I, I love um, every aspect of that job. I love the design element. I love operationalizing that design and actually making something starting with a blank sheet of paper and actually at the end of a project, whatever it's 18, 24 months, having something that actually worked and benefit, benefited people was pretty, pretty amazing and pretty rewarding. From there, though, what really changed my life is I became really good friends uh, with our CFO, Jim Caruso, uh, and the only reason I talked to Jim, honestly, was because we were in a work fantasy football league together because there was really no other reason for me as a junior engineer to be talking to this this guy. But he really played a huge role in my life. He kind of took me under his wing and said, listen, you've got a lot of potential. You should think about going to business school. And I didn't really know a lot about the business world. So Jim filled in a lot of a lot of pieces for me. And he kind of gave me that impetus to start thinking about what else to do beyond engineering and what else to do with the rest of my career. And that's what led me to work. So let's jump forward to the present and talk about what you're building today. For those who aren't familiar, can you describe Arcelix and the impact your team is hoping to make for patients and their caregivers? Yeah, so at Arcelix, we make uh, CAR-T therapy. So CAR-T therapy is, is kind of a new therapeutic modality. It's, and it essentially harnesses a patient's own immune system to treat cancer and, and other diseases. Uh, and effectively, the way it works is that we are able to extract uh, T cells from a patient and genetically modify them so that they can identify and bind to a particular tumor type that they have. We insert 
uh, reinsert those T cells back into the patient, they proliferate and they're able to eradicate the uh, cancer. And uh, so that's pretty amazing. It's, it's really one of the newest um, kind of what I believe will be one of the foundations of medicine over that decade to come. And one of the reasons that attracted me to Arcelix. Like one of the things I, I talk about is one of the reasons I joined Arcelix is I kind of wanted to work on something that has Time Magazine kind of potential, right? Like if it worked, it could really change the world and, and certainly treating cancer and particularly some of the things that we're working on here um, have that potential. Like if they really work, we could be the first company to treat some of these previously untreatable conditions. And that is the kind of thing to, to your point that I really care about. Like I, I care about impact both from a people perspective. That's why I invest so much time in people and culture and, and leadership, but ultimately from a humanity. You've said before that one of the things a CEO is responsible for is creating an environment where everyone can do their best every day. Why is focusing on culture so important? I think leadership and culture both matter a lot. I think in the instances where companies, I, I saw in my experience, both in my experience in venture and certainly in my experience as an operator now through two companies, uh, I mean, leadership matters a lot, like having the right leaders, uh, particularly the right leader, CEO, but in general, having the right leadership team is really important. And then culture matters a lot. I think it's one of the things that is gets talked about a lot, but not actually executed uh, as well. Like, you know, we were having a chat at our Celix here about culture and and how to describe it in kind of the interview process. And one of our uh, leadership team members, our, our general counsel, Miriam, came up with probably the best answer, which is it's real. Like everyone talks about culture. Everyone has values on their websites, but ours is actually real. Like it's truly reflective of what we talk about. And I think that's kind of the hard thing that's missing. Like, you know, when you look at companies and you or you look at teams that are successful, like culture generally is the that driver of that success. But it's how often does that happen? Not often enough. And but when it does, it's pretty special and it's pretty magical. So when is the appropriate time in a company's life cycle to start thinking about and creating a culture? I ask this because I can see how startups who are often time and resource constrained end up prioritizing growth metrics and culture becomes a secondary concern. Also, how do you go about forming a culture for a new company? What have you guys done at Arcelix to make that culture real? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I've done it twice now, um, so I can say, I guess, with more certainty that it is executable, right? It is a function of the, of the process. So I think you, you got to start on day one, focusing on culture. And I think maybe let's start with breaking down what culture is, because it's one of those mysterious things that people talk about. But, you know, I'm an engineer. I like to break things down into like executable definitions. So culture really is two things. It's the values you value in your people. So for example, if you say we value teamwork or collaboration and you have a superstar player that's a jerk and doesn't get along with other people, doesn't treat people well, then you don't really value teamwork if you keep that person on the team or if you don't address their behavior. So your culture is first and foremost, whatever set of values you think are really important for your team to, to operate well, and then actually living by those values. So 
Uh, it's making people decisions by those values. Netflix has a really succinct way of putting it. Your culture is who you hire, who you fire, and who you promote. I think that is 100% true. If you make your people decisions based on the set of values that you outline, then that will be your culture. And the thing that's interesting about culture is it's going to happen. Whether you do it intentionally or not, you're going to have a culture. So you might as well put in the effort from day one to your question of putting a culture in place that you actually enjoy and is going to drive performance because ultimately you spend more time working than doing anything else. Like you want to be in an environment that you enjoy. Secondarily, a great culture, and certainly that's been my experience at both Nevro and Aracelix, attracts and retains, helps you attract and retain exceptional people. Um, exceptional people want to be part of winning teams. They want to feel connected to the purpose of the organization. Uh, they want to feel like they're having an impact. They want to work with other exceptional people. Like It's frustrating if you're exceptional and you're doing a great job and you know the team around you just isn't able to deliver. So a great culture can help enable all of those things. So it's not just about fun and environment. It's really about attracting and retaining the best people and putting them in a in a place where they can do what they do best every day. So that's one whole big part of culture. The other part, and I think a lot of people do get that, like operationalizing it and having the discipline to consistently make people decisions by those values is what's hard about it. It's not necessarily the coming up with the values. I think most companies don't have super unique values, but most companies struggle with actually making good operational decisions or living those values. I think that's what we've been able to do really well, both at Nevro and at ourselves. The other part that is harder though, is the environment, right? So my sort of three environmental rules are no bureaucracy, no hierarchy, and no politics. Those things are hard, harder to enforce. So hierarchy is an example. When you have a growth organization, as you grow, more and more people get promoted into manager roles, but even more than those people that you promote, like a lot of people want to be managers. And so what happens in a lot of organizations, you start creating these little layers just to accommodate those people. And then you have a super hierarchical organization with too many layers and things just don't work as well. Things get bogged down. And so striving to maintain a relatively flat organization as you grow is really hard because it goes against a lot of times the needs of individuals. But again, going back to culture, if you create a culture that's centered around purpose and teamwork and kind of the greater good and people buy into that, they're going to be willing to give up their little fiefdoms in order to be part of something greater. So that's kind of a good example. Bureaucracy is another one. As you're building an organization, things break all the time. <laughs> and the general response to things breaking is people want to put rules in place so they can deal with that break the next time it happens. And you as a leadership team, and particularly as a CEO, have to fight that as much as you can and try to manage by exception as much as you can, because that will maintain kind of the agility of the organization. Now, I can't tell you if that works to 10,000 people. I've only grown a company to about 1,000 people. I can tell you it works to about a thousand people. You can generally, for the most part, manage by exception and, and maintain a pretty low level of bureaucracy. And that uh, that makes a huge difference. So I know that's a lot, but it's a really important point. Um, culture sounds like mystical and fun, and it can be as an output, but like the underlying things you have to do to make a great culture they're not necessarily hard to understand, but they are generally hard to consistently do. And that's why 
I think so few companies wind up doing them well. Something else that I think really stands out about your culture at Arcelix is that commitment to diversity and equity and inclusion. Almost 50% of your company identifies as having a diverse racial or ethnic background. And so talking about that commitment and having those policies to really stay true to that DE&I initiatives. What have you guys done to really make sure that every day you get, this is a top priority for you guys? And what do you think other life sciences companies or other companies in general should be doing to encourage more of this? Yeah, that's kind of been our, our secret weapon, both at Nevro and Arcelix. Um, so if you go through everything I said, and your goal is to hire like the very best people, I always say like, we're trying to hire Michael Jordans, like the people who are just absolutely the best at what they do. As an example, you can't consciously or subconsciously exclude 50% of the population because they're women. And that is a lot of times what happens, right? Organizations overlook female talent, and that's why you have you know, disproportionate numbers of, of, of men in roles of leadership. Um, so what we do is, number one, we focus on hiring the very best person. So we try to eliminate bias in the hiring process. I have a whole TED Talk on this, but things like making sure that we have diverse panels uh, when we interview candidates, making sure that we look at our teams holistically. Like, for example, as I was building the management team, I really focused on making sure that if we, based on our makeup, like where we can add diverse talent and make sure that our team as a whole is diverse. Like I won't necessarily, I can't always predict like if one role can be a diverse person or not, but I can surely make sure that the whole, the makeup of the team overall um, is diverse. Um, so I think that is important. I think creating an environment where people are attracted to it and can be themselves and bring their authenticity and their kind of whole self to work is really important. I think if you talk, I think this is where a lot of companies struggle. Like they say they want diversity and A, they don't necessarily put the effort in to get those diverse candidates because sometimes it can be harder. It take, could take longer, whatever the cost is to get that diverse candidate. And two, they don't really have an environment where those candidates are going to thrive or the, or they're going to feel like they can be themselves. You know, those are the things that we've done really well, both at Nevro and Arcelix. And I think you can, again, you can see it in the results in our board makeup and our management team makeup and our scientists and just team members in general that are female, that are diverse uh, from an ethnicity perspective. And I would say this is not just a nice thing to do. Like, I think it's foundational, uh, certainly to the success that I've found in both of the companies I've been able to run. Uh, it really is a competitive advantage. Like you're getting much more uh, top talent. But when it comes to you found a great candidate, how do you ensure that they are working in an environment that, that it fosters engagement and general happiness at work? Because like you were kind of hinting at, it's one thing to get a diverse candidate in the door. It's another thing to try to retain them with everything else that's going on in their lives as well. That's a great question. I feel like a huge part of that is just who else is on the company and who else is on the team. I think if you build it, you kind of have to build it one person at a time. But if you hire great people, they want like, it's easier to attract more great people because they come in and they're like, oh, I love working with this team. I think so that's a big element of it. I think, look, there's definitely some things that where you have to provide some flexibility and benefits and so on to really help level the playing field. Like, I'll give you an example. I drop off my kids at school 
in the morning. So I get into the office probably around 8.30ish or so. Um, and so doing that, you know, I think as a CEO does help normalize. If you've got to drop your kids off or do things like that, that can certainly help attract and retain more women in the workforce, particularly uh, that are earlier or younger in their careers, because unfortunately, from like a societal perspective, a lot of the weight of child rearing things can be placed on women, as we all know. And so making sure that you have that kind of flexibility and a little bit of setting the example and saying, hey, it's okay to be you. Like, that's me. That's how I, I run my day and live my life. And I expect everyone on our team to be able to have that flexibility to do what they need to do to make their lives work outside of work. I think that it's not the thing, but it's one thing that certainly can help. But I think the more important thing is is really for people to feel like we accept them for who they are and we want them for who they are. And they feel like not just that from me, but from the broader team. And it's just hard to to put into words what that feels like, but you feel it when you're here, right? Like people, when they come in and they interview and they meet this diverse group of people and they feel that energy and they see them being who they are, like they're not just corporate drones, like they bring their kind of real self to work. They're like, wow, this place is different, you know? And we've had that. We've had people interview where they are like, is this for real? Like when I show up, is it going to be really like this? And we're like, yeah, that's just the way it is. You know, that's the way we are. And it's super fun. Obviously, you have to deliver and performance is important. It's not fun losing either. <laughs> You've got to be able to deliver. Um, but to be able to deliver and have fun and work with amazing people, that's that's kind of the trifecta. And we're we're fortunate to have that. And I'll just tell you, it, it takes a lot of effort, but it's not magical. It's just really more about discipline and, and holding out for the values that you really believe are important. So focusing on culture is a big part of how you grew Nevro and Arcelic so quickly. What other focus areas helped you scale these businesses? And how did your management style change as you grew a business from early stages to commercial? You know, one of the things about leadership that people talk about a lot is that it's lonely at the top. The thing is, I've never felt lonely. Like my approach is really very collaborative. I love to bounce ideas off. I love to get a lot of input before I make a decision. And so I have to say, I, I don't feel like things change a lot for me from 30 people to 1,000 people. And we haven't quite gotten to that big of a number at our Celics, but it just doesn't change that much. I think your time allocation changes. So I think maybe the most important thing is that you have to build the right foundation, both from a team perspective and a culture perspective in the early days. So back to your question of how early do you start thinking about these things? You got to start thinking about them on day one because it's a little bit like building a house so if you don't build a strong foundation and you start layering everything on top over the years, the house is going to crumble, right? But if you build the right foundation, if you have the right leaders around you, and my definition of a leader is that I don't have to think about their function if they're in charge of that function. I mean, I certainly will help them and support them and be a sounding board, but like, I don't have to think about it day to day because they are really fully in control and in charge of that function. And if you have those people and you have great rapport and relationship and trust with them, that is kind of the right foundation that you need. And again, the culture, you know, the things that we stress like collaboration, 
foundation and, and character and those foundational things, you're going to go a long way. I think too, one thing that we haven't really talked about is support. Um, like having the right board is crucial. Uh, I've seen I've seen it personally. Um, so I've been really fortunate to work with people like Ali Bahani, who uh, backed me at Nevro and actually is the person who pulled me in here uh, into our Celix. You can't underestimate the value of having people like that that you trust that are super at what they do and can be a great sounding board and and really allow you to make long-term decisions. I think one of the things that companies struggle with is making long-term decisions. A lot of times you're just sort of managing for the short term and having the right board and particularly the right investors um, can really help you build something really special over the long term. A lot of times CEOs don't get to choose their boards necessarily. But if you had that power, what exactly would you be looking for in a board? Yeah, I mean, I would be looking for people like Ali Bhavani, like Jill Carroll, Simeon George, people that um, I know uh, really think long term are interested in building uh, business, but also as care as much as I do about culture, about character, about leadership. You also want people that have a steady hand, like no matter what you're doing, there's going to be difficult times and, and challenges and bumps along the way. So you want people who don't get rattled uh, when things are tough. Like we had to take this company public in February and like the worst biotech bear market of all time. We had to do another fundraise in June when the market was even worse than it was in February. And I felt really empowered in my role to make the right decisions for the company, even though those were risky decisions, because I knew I had a board with a steady hand and a lot of wisdom. And that is, is really uh, what you need. Uh, you obviously want them to have a lot of experience and a lot of perspective. Like they're also uh, super helpful in, in that regard. Like they know the market really well. They know players, they know all their investors. They can help us make whether they're pipeline decisions or strategic decisions and can be a great sounding board for difficult decisions. So I think that's really important. But I'd say at our Celix, I, I more or less did get to pick my board and I love I mean, we have a great one. I mean, the people I mentioned, Olivia Ware is amazing. Uh, David Lubner is is incredible. Like we've got, um, just as I've been able to really build the team here, I was fortunate to inherit some amazing people and then had the opportunity at a couple others, Kavita Patel as well. Like we've got, this is the first time I feel like I've had the board and the management team exactly where I want them and it feels great. <laughs> That's awesome. Let's talk about fundraising since our Celix went public in 2022. Congratulations again, and successfully raised over $200 million during such a difficult biotech equity market. What advice do you have for other biotech companies fundraising in a bear market? So the first lesson I would say is, is definitely to, the, to your last question, having a supportive board. I mean, in particular, um, Ali Babahani and Jill Carroll played a, a critical kind of leadership role in, in helping us pull off this IPO uh, in, in February of this year. You got to start with having the right people around the table. I think uh, I've heard from investors that too many management teams and CEOs were skittish during that time, but I'm sure they don't really have visibility into the, the boards. I'm sure some boards were, were struggling as well. And so I think it takes, I mean, to pull off something in a difficult environment like that, kind of all things have to hit. You've got to have really strong experienced management team. You've got to have the right, both board and investors around the table. We are fortunate to have done a crossover uh, financing 
have brought together a lot of really strong investors. And I can tell you, they weren't uniformly supportive of us going public at that time. There was definitely some folks that felt like it was too risky. And But, you know, you kind of have to have that force of will to pull people along if you think it's the right thing. And again, having a supportive board is critical. I think telling the right story is really important. Part of the challenge in this biotech bear market is things shifted from selling the dream worked to like having an actual foundational important late stage program was what worked and not enough companies kind of foresaw this shift or were ready for it or had the story aligned to it. And so I think like that's one of the first things I did when I joined our sellers. We had the option of going in, in either direction. We kind of had a solid dream pipeline and we had like a real lead program. And it just seems obvious right now that you would lean onto your real lead program. But at the time it wasn't like there was a lot of people that a lot of investors that would have preferred us to put more weight on the pipeline, but sort of recognizing the market that you're in and, and leaning into what works is important. Now, in our case, I actually really believe that that was the right strategy anyway. It wasn't just the function of this is what worked well for the current financing environment. But in any event, I think having the right strategy and the right story is really, really critical. I think also just having that constitution to just pull through when, when a lot of people are poking holes and challenging you and telling you it's not the right idea and you're going to look bad and all these kind of things. And you got to be really confident, like managing through, it's kind of a little bit like navigating through a storm, right? Like just going around in circles or sitting, sitting still is not going to get you through. Uh, one of my favorite favorite sort of concepts that I think, especially in this environment, people sometimes forget is that losing slowly is not a strategy. So a lot of companies do that. Like they just keep punting and punting and punting. And they're like, okay, we're running out of money, but if we just wait, the market's going to turn around and we'll be able to. And it's like, yeah, I mean, losing slowly, just like, so that running out the clock so that you don't take the risk personally it's not a winning strategy. Like if you really believe like your company should be a public company and you have the team and the data and strategy and all of that, then just take the personal risk and do it. I mean, I was, uh, I remember Eileen Fernandez, our chief business officer, then on Friday night, we were going public on a Monday morning, called me late on Friday. And she's like, how are you feeling? And I said, well, aside from the fact that my name is on the cover and if this goes south, I'm going to look like an idiot. I feel great because I feel like we've got a great story and we've got a great business and we've got great investors and we're going to go out and execute. And I think sometimes that that personal risk and that self-doubt can hold people back, but always remind them like losing slowly is not a strategy. <laughs> like just waiting it, waiting it out is not a strategy. So how do you maintain your conviction in what you believe is right and not give in to the doubts or the naysayers? That's a hard question to answer. I'm an intrinsically pretty confident person. Now, I like I said, and I get a lot of input from a lot of people. Like I talk to a lot of people before I make a decision, but I always own the decision. I don't always necessarily just follow what other people tell me. And I certainly weigh advice differently from different folks, depending on their perspective or experience. But I trust my instincts. You know, I, I feel like they've certainly got me here and, and guided me. That doesn't mean I do the same thing always, an engineer at heart, and I make decisions based on the data. And I'll give you an example that we haven't talked about. 
So when I joined Arcelix, the plan was that we were going to build our own manufacturing facility. And those things are incredibly expensive to build. We are a private company at the time. And, you know, when I joined Arcelix, the market was still in a massive bubble. I was like, I, we just can't do this. Like, we can't build this thing that's going to cost that much money uh, while we're private. And if the market goes south, then we're in big trouble. And and I, I said, look, there's definitely a lot of other options out there we can explore. So why would we do this? And the answer I got back consistently was no cell therapy company has ever not built a manufacturing facility. We would be the first one. And I got to tell you, like another sort of broad lesson that I certainly played out in my life is that if you do what everyone else is doing, it's a surefire path to mediocrity. So we didn't do that. Like we wound up canceling building that facility. And at the time, again, the management team was pretty split, but it turned out to be the right decision in hindsight for all sorts of reasons, because it turned out it was a bubble because there are a lot of different options out there that we can explore that are more cost effective, but that's hard, right? Because I'm new to cell therapy. All these people certainly know more than I do about it. And sometimes you have to make these really hard decisions. But what I found is that if you come at it from a perspective of learning, like you're asking these questions and you're challenging people to think differently, not from a place of arrogance or you know better, but from a place of like, listen, I'm just really trying to understand this and here are the risks that I see. Here's an alternative path forward. One of my mentors used to always say, like, think about the art of the possible. Like, is it possible? Like, could we do this? Is this, is it like, let's not figure out the million reasons why we can't do it. Let's figure out can we do it and how we can do it and kind of reorienting some of those conversations. But ultimately, you got to bet on yourself. Uh, maybe the last thing I'll say is that when I used to be in venture and I used to sit on boards, whenever we'd hire a new CEO, I used to tell them like, look, I'm here for you. Call me anytime. Happy to provide advice, sounding board, whatever. You're going to get a lot of perspective from a lot of people. If you listen to everybody on the board and you make a bad decision, they're still going to hold you accountable and they're probably going to fire you. So you might as well just make whatever decisions you think are the right decisions. So it doesn't matter where the ideas came from. It doesn't matter if you listen to them or not. Like people ultimately judge you on your performance. So I think that sometimes gets lost in a lot of situations, especially like really difficult pressure situations. People think the safe thing is to wait it out, like the loose slowly strategy or the safe thing just to listen to the majority of what other people are telling you. But neither of those things are safe. Like all that matters at the end of the day is performance. And so you got to get a lot of input, but you've got to own those decisions and just trust your gut. And I imagine Arcelix has had to make some difficult decisions in prioritizing opportunities, such as what indications to go after or manufacturing choices. What frameworks do you use to help you evaluate which opportunities to prioritize? So, I mean, starting at the top, your, your responsibility as the CEO are always to hit the near-term things you need to hit and invest in the long-term. And again, that goes back to having, having the support that you need at the board and investor level, having the resources to do that. And yeah, in a, in a startup like this or at Nevro, you don't have infinite resources. You can't do everything. So I think fundamentally, you have to have a process by which you evaluate opportunities. So I, example, at Nevro, we ran a ton of phase one studies where Kind of doing something not too dissimilar here at Arcelic. And then you kind of let the data kind of drive you. The other really important thing though, and I've had this happen both at Nevro and Arcelix, is to make sure that A, you're setting aggressive timelines 
because work will always take the amount of time that's allotted to it. They have to be somewhat realistic, but aggressive timelines. And at the same time, you have to have people understand that while we're pushing for these timelines, you know, if something slips or if something doesn't work out, like bad news is better than no news. Like uh, we have a culture of rewarding if something, you know, failing quickly or shooting for the stars and, and you know, landing on the moon is okay uh, from a timeline or, a, or an output perspective. And that's kind of a little bit of a delicate balance to build into R&D organizations is that we're going to push hard and we're going to strive and we're going to try to do crazy things on crazy timelines. But at the same time, like, hey, it's okay. Like if, if we need a quarter or something, we need a change in strategy because, you know, data is pointing us in a different direction. That's not just okay. That's great. Like that's, you know, as long as we're pushing, that's what we want. And I can tell you, having been an engineer, it's tricky. Like you, it, you want to push people, but you also want them to feel like they can take the time they need to get things right. And that they, if, if they, the data pushes them in a different direction, the organization like values that, not punishes that. One more question before we go. What advice do you have for someone interested in becoming a senior leader in the life sciences startup ecosystem? I think one other thing I can think of that is really important, particularly, again, if you're thinking about your career, is that there's no magic. You know, I think when you look at CEOs and boards, kind of feels a little bit magical. Like, who are these people? Like, how do they get there? How do they do it? And when you get up close... There's really no magic. I mean, there are good people and not so good people, and but there's no magic. I think if you, you know, most people who are listening to this, you have the talent, you have the drive, you know, I think the confidence and the self-belief and just going after it is the thing that maybe you need because I, when you see it up close, I you realize that you can do it too. I'll be taking that advice to heart and I hope our listeners will as well. What a fantastic conversation. So thank you again, Rami, for being part of the show. Mm-hmm.